0: Внимание говорит и показывает Москва.
1: Фейдры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин, никто не слушал. Послушайте Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу, а сотрудники
0: безопасности с новым, с гоном вас
1: с новым веком.
0: Independent media outlets and civic organizations are shutting down after being designated foreign agents or undesirable organizations. Russia's media regulator, Roskomnadzor, has blocked 49 websites linked to Alexei Navalny as the imprisoned opposition leader's associates are being arrested or are fleeing the country. And the FSB has published a list of 61 topics that Russians are forbidden to discuss lest they be designated as foreign agents. Vladimir Putin's regime is dialing up the repression to 11. And today, we'll discuss what that all means. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast which is produced by the University of Texas-Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host, my name is Brian Whitmore, I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where she's hanging out for some reason, is my old friend and colleague, Maria Negovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, and a visiting scholar at the Institute for European in Russian and Eurasian studies at George Washington University. Welcome back to the podcast, Maria, and welcome back to America. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. From St. Petersburg to Jackson Hole. What a what a jump. I wanted to, to start with you, since uh, you did just return from a long trip to Russia and you always have interesting insights when you come back from Russia. And I thought it'd be good for just the two of us to have a casual conversation about what you observed, how you see things changing, and if your assumptions about where Russia is heading are changing due to what you heard and see. So just to get the ball rolling, what are your top line reactions to what you experienced in Russia during this last trip? What has changed? What, if anything, surprised you? How palpable is the crackdown? What's the mood in civil society?
1: Uh, Sure, uh, Brian. So since uh, coronavirus has disrupted my travel plans before, I made sure to stay a little bit longer in Russia this time, spent a couple of times, traveled around the country, at least the European part of Russia, um, and uh, spoke to people. Uh, overall, first of all, of course, the major impression that you pointed out correctly is this wave of repressions and spreading fear uh, across my uh, the people I know, my friends. Uh, and you never know who's coming. Who, who, who are they coming next for? So some of the friends I meet today and next day they left uh, uh, the country. Uh, and uh, some people have pointed out that Moscow has is becoming increasingly empty. Like there's just fewer people to hang out with because a lot of good people were forced to leave. So that is unfortunate reality of today's uh, Russia's regime, turning from softer, milder autocracy, if you will. Some called it hybrid in the past into a real hardcore uh, autocracy, masks are off. Uh, We, I mean, everything that we have been uh, describing, like we've been describing Russia in the past as a hardcore autocracy. Now we sort of see that uh, it already is, indeed is. Uh, The second impression I would say is uh, the fact that these repressions are probably, and this is probably related to the first uh, point, uh, the probably uh, the protests are taking place uh, because a lot of people in the country are no longer happy with the regime and that sort of spreading uh, perception. Uh, which is very different from the one, for example, that used to be like 10 years uh, ago, or even after Crimea annexation and the euphoria that spread across the society. So you spoke to people in the train, spoke to taxi drivers, speak to taxi drivers and all, uh, some random people, and uh, many of them are not happy with the way things are in the country. Uh, those of, of them who I thought would always stay loyal or at least uh, kind of compliant, they uh, increasingly reflected, the, uh, expressed dissatisfaction. Some of them started sending Navalny links to me. Some of the people who in the past used to tell me, "Oh my God, he's a horrible person. Why, uh, why do you mention Navalny?" Uh, things like that. So from that perception uh, perspective, yes, there is a frustration. Although uh, that frustration does not immediately convert in support for liberal democratic opposition. Uh, mm-hmm. That is just a frustration. Uh, but these people actually are big uh, supporters of. Multiple vari- variety of de- ideologies, you know, starting from, I don't know, communist, almost hardcore nationalist uh, mm. uh, types, all the way up until uh, liberal uh, democrats. So there's, there's a whole spectrum. Uh, and that is another indication that um, there's sort of lack of consolidation of the opposition of the protests
0: at this but point. But the discontent runs across this ideological spectrum from communists on the left to nationalists on the right to liberal Democrats in the middle, yeah?
1: Yes, that's it's, it's the way it seems. There are fewer, way fewer supporters of the regime, way fewer people who are satisfied with the direction of where the country is headed. Everybody seems, to, a lot of people, let's put it kind of softly, seem to feel that something's off, something's wrong. Although, even if they fail to verbalize it, and they increasingly take it on, on to Putin, right? Putin used to be the untouchable one, mm-hmm. the one on top in heaven. And I think we've spoken before that we've seen this in the polls as well, that uh, that is no longer the case. Putin is, uh, you know, uh, kind of this, Kind of ring of protection of. Oh yeah, his
0: rule was sanctified in the past. That's the way I always yes. thought about it. His, his his rule was almost considered sacred. Um, it's the old Russian uh, notion of the good czar and the bad boyars. Um, that that's that's been there throughout Russian history. But with with Putin, this was he was almost this figure sitting atop the thing. And what what was yeah. what was frustrating Russian people who are let's face it, Maria always frustrated. I've never known the Russian people not to be frustrated. Um, but now this this rule has been desanctified. I, I guess is what you're saying. Saying, yeah,
1: uh, It seems to be that it's been, yeah, this uh, sanctity of Putin is eroded and uh, people uh, increasingly sort of in uh, casual conversations uh, take it upon him, even those people who used to be his uh, biggest supporters. So these are the two major impressions. And of course, they are closely interconnected.
0: Now, fear and repression are nothing new in Putin's Russia. Um, I mean, it's ever since specifically since he returned to the presidency in 2012 after Medvedev's little fake presidency from, from, from 2008 to 2012, there has been this escalating repression. Um, the, um, the, the, the laws on, the, on foreign agents, the, the, the pussy riot case, all of the things that happened in the aftermath of the Bolotnaya protests. Um, how different is what you're seeing now? to what we've been seeing since 2012. Is this just a continuation of that trend that we saw starting in 2012, or is something escalating, and if so, what?
1: Yes, it's it's an excellent question. Of course, that's a continuation of everything we've seen before. At the same time, while also, I think, going to qualitatively a new level. So that's the case of quantity uh, Mm -hmm. converging into quality. Quality. Uh, It's uh, more of a mass scale repression to the extent that, uh, but I want to be specific about definitions, not in the sense that, I don't know, all one and 145 million of people are afraid that they're going to be next no but in the sense that there seems to be a very specific uh uh principle formula according to which the regime Targets, specific groups. Uh, the regime is going on after the groups, uh, specific uh, uh, elements of the civil society rather than individual activists or, I don't know, individual journalists in the past. So the skill is different. And as we have discussed before, uh, this has been taking place all the way, uh, starting with the changes of the constitution, which were introduced last year and allowed Putin to stay in power all the way up until 2036. Uh, as well as the process that I believe was also sort of accelerated following the uh, Belarusian events. Mm -hmm. It seems that uh, it had some some sort of uh, formative uh, uh, impact on the Kremlin, and the Kremlin is committed not to let the color revolutions happen, either in Belarus or, God forbid, uh, Russia. Russia and Belarus are the last resort. And uh, therefore, they are going after any groups uh, that can represent remotely... Mildest uh, challenge uh, to mm-hmm. the regime because let's face it, Russia's civil society, the, like emerging civil society, was never that strong uh, to represent a serious challenge to regime's hold on power in the mm-hmm. near future. Uh, but right now, that it looks like they're committed to destroy any possible threat uh, for the long term because, as uh, we have also pointed out before, uh, the long-term challenges are there. So they're right now now going up to long-term
0: challenges, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I want to drill down into a couple of these things that I've noticed in the trends in this current repression. But before I do that, I mean, you and I have both watched this regime over its 20 years in power from afar and from close um, at different stages in our careers. And there have been periods in the Putin regime where this regime has looked supremely confident, right? It's looked very, very confident, um, think back to the, you know, the se- Putin's second term in office, for example, from 2004 to 2008. It looked very confident. In the period following the annexation of Crimea, it looked very confident. And we've also seen periods where it looked less confident. How confident? Because th- do you see what we're witnessing right now? Is this a sign of a regime that looks confident or not? It looks like a regime that is very, very insecure to me. But I wasn't just in Russia for a couple of months. I wanted to, how, how did it look up close to you from there?
1: Uh, the opposition in Russia likes to talk about how regime is about holding on to its last grip. It's about yeah. to collapse uh, yeah. anytime soon. So I would not subscribe to that narrative. I think that there's still uh, some uh, source of sustainability for the regime. However, I agree in the sense that the risks are increasing, and we have discussed this in the past. Uh, the younger generations, uh, the so-called Generation Z, especially to some extent millennials, uh, they are increasingly uh, the most opposition-minded groups in the society. The regime does not allow them social lifts and does not represent them even like in terms of uh, their identity. Right, Essentially, Russia at this point is ruled by a bunch of older people, whose experiences and essentially world you've were shaped uh, during the Soviet times, especially for this very particular Silviki background. And the significant, these groups do not represent and do not relate to increasingly large uh, shares of the Russian population. Uh, the regime seems to have a vacant uh, to uh, this threat. And that, of course, the one of the sources of um, insecurity. It mm-hmm. seems, as I mentioned before, that especially after Belarus, but also uh, in light of the need to sustain hold on power and collapsing support for, spec- first of all, the United Russia. At this point, it's below 30%. And mm-hmm. in Moscow, uh, Russia's capital, it's actually, if I'm not mistaken, uh, below 15%, uh,
0: wow. around 15%. Wow.
1: Yeah. Not too, not too good.
0: That's, that's um, shocking. Okay. That's interesting.
1: And, of course, as we have pointed out before, Putin himself, right, as reflected from my casual conversations with people, uh, but he, uh, his uh, popularity decline is also reflected in uh, in the polls, uh, right? As we speak today, the new poll by uh, Navalny's uh, uh, foundation that's been put on the put the undeciscibles list has come out, which shows that only um, 41% have a positive attitude towards Putin, as opposed to mm. 46% a year ago, so 5% uh, decline, and they say, they say they've never seen such low uh, support for Putin. Uh, of course, it's a political organization, so they might, uh, I don't know, maybe you would like um, some data by independent uh, polls. Uh, Levada, mm. uh, Levada shows that things are not as bad. Of those who approve of Putin in July uh, this year, there's 64, 64% 64 of uh, uh, respondents, but it's still fairly low uh, by uh, Putin's mm-hmm. historic of rating. So it's not very good. And because Putin is crucial here, because as we have discussed, Putin has had this sanctity uh, and the... Uh, Legitimizing image that provided legitimacy to the rest of the system. If Putin's support is eroded, essentially the regime doesn't have anything
0: anymore. Yeah, no, it's not entirely personal. It's a yeah.
1: personalistic regime, and as Volodin has famously, notoriously put it, "There is no Putin. There is no Russia." Of course, what he really meant, if there is no Putin, there is no Putin's regime, and that is, of course quite threatening uh, to the system, and the system realizes that, uh, and therefore it cracks down directly on uh, the areas where it sees the key uh, threats, and the key Mm -hmm. threats are coming from the civil society, including all sorts of NGOs, all sorts of grassroots movements, the journalists, the independent journalists, of course, the lawyers the team mm. 29 uh, famous a very well-achieved professional team of lawyers and defenders uh has just been uh, put on the undesirable list in russia uh and had to essentially you know, yeah. end its existence and most importantly i wanted to draw your attention brancer for uh, the last uh, doctrine st- strategy of national security uh which was published. Mm-hmm. Uh, Last month, where essentially the threats coming from uh, the youth being brainwashed by what uh, they describe as uh, the Internet, uh, specifically some horrible content that they find on the Internet, is one of the key elements of uh, threats that come to the current regime. So from that perspective, in some ways, I feel uh, pleased. Uh, In the sense that the regime kind of also acknowledges my work, (laughs) (laughs) where we repeatedly pointed out that uh, the younger generation is uh, growing increasingly unhappy with this regime. Unfortunately, uh, the regime is going to crack down on that. That's what it means.
0: Yeah, no, as they are. And we we had a fascinating discussion in the last podcast with Kostya Egerton, James Sher about the national security strategy um, on, the, on the last podcast. And we people like us are always kind of reaching for historical analogies to understand Russia. I mean, they're not they're imperfect. Um, but I think they're a useful heuristic. And a couple a couple historical analogies I'm kind of pulling out now are, and you mentioned the degree that this regime has been personalized. And Russia has not had a regime that's been so centralized and so personalized and so dependent on one personality uh, since Stalin. And I am not saying, you know, for all you trolls out there, I am not saying Putin is Stalin. Um, but I am saying that if you look at the structure of the system, we have not seen a Russian regime so centralized. Um, as, as, as Putin's current regime since Stalin, and that does not bode well. When, when Stalin died, it set off a, a bit of a, a war among the elite. And we have another factor in the mix this time around, and that is the civil society you've been talking about. The other historical analogy I am drawing from right now, and you correctly pointed out, Maria, is that this these people are aging. Right, we're all aging. Let's face it. Unfortunately, um, I'm in my late 50s. We're all aging. But they're they're um, they, they are this re- and this reminds me of the the late Brezhnev period, where you basically have these old men, and they always are men running the country um, that is out of touch with with, with, with a new generation that's, that's that's coming to power. So I'm no no question there. I'm just kind of I'm making an observation here. Um, I don't know what conclusions we can draw on it. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Uh, I well, um, it's um, in terms of personalism. It's interesting, right, that the Soviet uh, terms the system, the communist system, was more institutionalized, mm-hmm. even if there was still this personalistic angle, even after Stalin. Right, we know that Brezhnev's Soviet Union is different from, I know, Gorbachev's uh, Soviet uh, Union, even technically, the institutional But neither were personalized. Has. Neither were uh, there was, a, I would say, it was a hybrid, right? There was a degree of discretion at the on top, at the same, but yet constrained by the existing institutions. And here, I agree uh, that there is a much more uh, personalistic an element in contemporary Russia, and that, of course, makes it uh, at the same time both more stable, stable and more vulnerable. Mm. More vulnerable, of course, because just one person in such a big country cannot uh, count, fold, can cannot possibly uh, decide the amount of uh, decision that he is forced to make. Even if, of course, we understand that Putin has a lot of assistance coming from the presidential assistance coming from presidential administration or the Security Council, where, as we are told, the increasing role is played by the key, right. uh, uh linked um, uh, kind of uh, high-level uh, elite uh, members. Right. Uh, Uh, However, uh, there is of course uh, also the element to stability uh, in the system because uh, historically, looking at the evolution of the autocratic regimes, um, the more sustainable in the long term uh, regimes are, spe- are the ones uh, that are personalistic right. because there's less disagreements about decision making, especially in challenging times. It's easier to consolidate uh, kind of power. It's easily to crack down on opponents. There's less dissenting, uh, fewer dissenting voices. Mm-hmm. So, from that perspective, unfortunately, uh, for Russia. Uh, We are increasingly looking at really the regime uh, that's likely to end uh, with Putin's uh, own life and Putin, as he likes to pointed out, is in fairly uh, decent shape right now. Or at, at, least
0: he, at least he tells us
1: that. <laughs> even if there's, there's a lot of conspiracy spread in Russia about being right. seriously ill. One more point, if I may add, uh, Brian, mm-hmm. to the crackdown. Just one thing I wanted to draw attention when we spoke about the youth. Uh, what also came out in the recent wave of repressions is, is the crackdown on the educational system, on uh, specifically the universities. Uh, one of the instances was uh, the crackdown on Kudrin, Alexei Kudrin, Putin's closest ally uh, project in St. Petersburg, that the um, Faculty of Liberal Arts, which was uh, organized in collaboration with Bart College, Barth College was put mm-hmm. on their desirable list. And uh, even Alexei Kudrin, uh, the system liberal, who is, so-called system liberal, who is a long-term ally of Putin, is now unprotected from this crackdown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second, of course, the second uh, case was uh, uh, Kudrin. Uh, Sorry, um, uh, Kuzminov, the director, the, the head of uh, the High School of Economics, uh, obviously, forcefully, uh, f- f- who was forced to leave uh, uh, the uh, essentially the governance of uh, the High School of Economics, the, of course, the famous liberal uh, university in Russia with a lot of position minded uh, professors and students. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting development in two two ways. First of all, uh, the education, the liberal arts education, the pro-democratic liberal education is now considered a threat. Once again, this youth angle that the authorities are trying to take internet under control, but also the educational system under control to ensure that the youth is uh, sort of protected from the so-called dangerous influences. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second, of course, is the end of the system liberals. I mean, the question... long-term debate question whether they lasted until now many of them Mm -hmm. were essentially forced to merge with the system but apparently not enough given that the regime still felt the need to totally crack down on them and even the strongest of them like alexei kudrin are no longer protected Mm -hmm. uh that of that is another new development that i think is very important to uh highlight
0: yeah. And I wanted to drill down into two aspects of the repression and the crackdown before we move into the second segment. One of them is this is this ongoing crackdown on independent media that is really being dialed up to 11. Like earlier this month, the news organization Prayect, liquidated itself after just one day after being declared an undesirable organization. In addition to Prayek's editor in chief, uh, Roman Badanin, RFRL correspondent Yelizaveta uh, 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 Myatnaya was, was a former colleague of mine open media editor Yulia Yarosh and her deputy Maxim Glekin were all added to the foreign agents list on July 2015 I mean uh, July 15th this is like this seems to be going over the top is this just about the state Duma elections in September or do you see something much deeper going on here with media
1: Oh, yes. Uh, Excellent question and sort of relates to what we have discussed before. I do think that the election have uh, uh, received a little bit too much attention from the observers. So, Mm -hmm. of course, that's partly about the election, right? Elections always serve a dangerous focal point in autocracies because they serve this consolidating... Point for dissent and very often are looking at the history of say color revolutions some kind of uh, protest movements They start around the elections usually because uh, people vote the authorities rig the election the results and then there is a large protest That spreads around the society. So that is the case. However, as I said before, uh, it did not start just uh, recently right this recent wave of repressions uh, Precedes uh, specifically this year. It started at least uh, At the very least last year, uh, in 2021, uh, the constitutional changes were introduced. And the the constitutional changes kind of shaped, changed uh, the the nature of the regime. Uh, Again, in a separate work with Kirill Rogov, Russia's uh, political scientist, we show uh, that the regimes uh, with fewer limits on uh, the presidential authority, they actually tend to be much uh, worse in terms of their institutions Mm -hmm. and more repressive uh that's one thing second is belarus uh belarus uh As we know since the beginning, the experience of color revolutions largely uh, shaped uh, Russia's regime and Russia's responses to it. Uh, Keith Darden, his work shows that every time a color revolution happens somewhere in the post-Soviet space, there is an increase in domestic repressions uh, Mm -hmm. within Russia. That is because the regime is horrified that something similar can happen uh, Mm -hmm. domestically. If we talk about Russia's regime ideology, the key point, the key idea, the key goal is to hold on to power they're horrified this is going to be taken away from them and belarus belarus is the last resort like Putin could tolerate Kyrgyzstan could potentially let go of ukraine although that was uh... very <laughs> Georgia Armenia but belarus looks like a last resort belarus is not uh being let go Uh, The regime is going to hold on to it and it's committed not to let something like this uh, repeat in Russia again. And then of course the elections. Ultimately the Belarusian events also happened around elections because of uh, Lukashenko's mistake to allow independent candidates, Ilana Tikhanovskaya, to run and Russia's regime of course uh, doesn't want that to serve an example for Russia's civil society.
0: Yeah, no, this – I mean, I have said this before, and I, I do believe what we're seeing is the latest phase in this breakup of the Soviet Union. I mean, the formal part of the Soviet Union broke up in 91, but the informal part of it kind of remained in place, and we're seeing bit by bit it's being chipped away at. Um, and, I mean, I, Putin could not have been happy to see uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya in, uh, in, in the White House yesterday meeting President Biden, that's for sure. Another thing on the media that I'm – I mean, I always had this assumption that this regime – Wanted to allow some token opposition media to exist, or independent media to exist as a safety valve, right? To let the opposition let off steam, to give the impression that there is some kind of. Pl- they seem to be giving up on that now. They seem to think the the costs of any independent media, any independent media, outweigh any any perceived benefits. I I, I, I would you would you agree with that?
1: I agree with that, and it's uh, funny since I had this image after uh, you know when it all started that uh, uh, you know when you uh, the opposition kept taking away this beautiful covers away from the regime, you know, hoping that the regime maybe will be ashamed or intimidated of showing right. its true nature. But when all the covers have been taken away, we see there's a monster outside, yeah. uh, inside, and the monster is. Uh, it's fine with that. They won't say yeah, it's they're just, okay with yes?
0: that. Yeah, no, it's okay,
1: true. you wanted that, you receive it. But most importantly, of course, in here, I wanted to kind of bring in a little bit of the foreign policy angle. Uh, one of the reasons for this crackdown is that the regime really does not face sufficient, um, sanctions sufficient, is not forced to pay sufficient price for things it's been doing outside of Russia and uh, domestically as well. So there was hardly any serious response to the attempt of poisoning Navalny. Uh, nor uh there is any serious uh, response to, say, for example, what Lukashenko is doing in Belarus, uh, we are still awaiting of the Transatlantic community to really bring up some serious response. Right. The sanctions effort is very commendable, but it's not uh, significant enough to make Lukashenko or Putin uh, change uh, the ways.
0: Yeah, I know, an, and, it, and it's not clear what, what will. Another thing I've noticed, and this is another thing that's different, is that the list of organizations designated as either foreign agents or undesirables is expanding beyond overtly political organizations, right? It's not just Navalny's organization or, or Hutterkovsky's organization or anything like this. It's including purely charitable organizations. I mean, the one that jumped out at me is the Czech nonprofit People in Need, um, which is a great organization. I, I, I lived in the Czech Republic. They do, they're doing God's work. Um, Putin now appears, they, and they're they're on the list of I forget if it was undesirables or foreign agents, but it doesn't matter. Um, Putin now appears undesirable. To be, it's undesirable. Putin now appears to be seeking out to wipe out even these very non-political segments of civil society, um, organizations that are that are that are basically helping the homeless or helping the people, you know, helping the poor. What is up with that? I mean, that's, that that's it seems just over the top, and I can't see a political logic behind that. The, first of all, uh, one small correction: that uh, these uh,
1: laws for an agent and individuals uh, have now been, uh, usually have not been applied to strictly political organizations. So it's not about parties. You mm-hmm. can argue, yes, maybe for uh, Navalny's foundation, maybe uh, described Popular as such, politics but other than that, defined. Uh, usually, it was used to be NGOs uh, mm-hmm. and uh, who that are engaged in some sort of political activity. But since the start, uh, the political activity was very broadly defined. For example, as mm-hmm. one, uh, there was really the case when uh, an organization had uh, a library a shelf of books, and some of the books were about, you know, political science, maybe, and that was uh, described as political activity, and the organization ended up on uh, one of those lists. Uh, f- usually, undesirable list is for organizations that, that are not registered in Russia, and the foreign agent list for. Uh, Russia's organizations. Uh, so, yeah, well, in that sense, I think it's uh, pr- pretty much in line with what we have uh, discussed before. There is a broader crackdown on different segments of civil society understood as being uh Particularly threatening uh, uh, in the long term. Uh, that's the ideology of the regime and the Slavicist that uh, the FSB that currently seems to be controlling the, this narrative. And then, of course, there is a lot of uh, self-like uh, uh, selfish uh, entrepreneurial minds that use this as an opportunity to, for example, revenge. Or achieve, or in some organizations, or maybe achieve uh, their personal political benefits. So, in recent, uh, in last weeks and months, we see a huge increase in the amount of people who actually write those collective uh, pledges or mm-hmm. uh, report to. Russian Siloviki Organization, asking to prosecute or punish some of the different uh, companies. Mm-hmm. And one of them, ironically, one of these people, actually, it was found out that in the past, he himself passed, uh, used to train, uh, was engaged in some kind of uh, program with National Endowment for Democracy and used to brag mm-hmm. about it on down for democracy. Just a reminder to our audiences: it has been on the undesirable list for quite a while at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a part, of, part of it. is the strategy. Individual strategies, sort of, uh, you know, embellish uh, himself in front of the regime, you know, kind of to uh, reject the past sins and to claim the new loyalty, mm-hmm. the allegiance to regime. Uh, but also, it's definitely part of the broader trend that includes crackdown not just on political opposition but also the civil society more broadly. And as we increasingly see media independent media and of course mm-hmm. uh, the universities the educational system which i would say is a fairly new development the, the bar the bad college ended up on the undesirables <laughs> list was a completely a uh, shocking uh development yeah, but of course but- we shouldn't be looking for logic for strict logic within uh these repressions because they're sort of once this repressive uh dynamic starts it tends to get its own logic and expand yeah. uh so therefore i wouldn't sort of take too much time trying to understand the logic once we understand the basic principles. I think that's that's got to be enough.
0: And along those lines. I mean, something that grabbed my attention, because this is positively Orwellian, um, is the FSB has published a list of 61 forbidden topics, 61 things Russians cannot talk about. You probably have already talked about 59 of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast, But these are like related to military or political matters. And if, if if I read this document correctly, if, if – and my colleagues at the – my former colleagues at Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty's Russian service did just really good reporting on this, um, and I looked at the original document, but if a Russian citizen talks about any of these 61 topics – um, which basically cover anything to do with the military or politics, if I, you know, they're broadly enough defined. They could be designated a foreign agent. Am I understanding that correctly, or was I misreading the Russian? I need to go back to school.
1: No, you're absolutely right, Brian. Yes, that's also part of this uh, whole uh, uh, psychosis or the trend, uh, if you will, uh, where, of course, uh, as I said, this whole situation creates a lot of people in uh, personal senses to uh, look up for spies you no, right denunciations, in a lot of ways this is resembling uh, 1930s, Uh mm-hmm. of course, not to the, in the sense of the scale, uh, but certainly the feeling that spreads across the society and the incentives that individuals get uh, that some not very uh, principled individuals, get in order to sort of ride uh, this way. Yes, and you're absolutely right. Those sort of topics uh, are so broad in the definition of what it means to, say, collaborate with some foreign entity. Like, for example, if you posted something on uh, your social media page, on, that's re- that's relevant to one of those uh, forbidden topics. And, uh, say, a foreign friend of yours, somebody who lives outside of the country of Russia, commented on it. That, would, that might also be constructed in a spying activity in the interest of this uh, foreign entity or foreign organization. So from this perspective, yes, there's absolutely no uh, kind of rule. There's no uh, any way to legally, institutionally kind of implement those laws. We know that there's no law in Russia, but in the past there used to be at least some kind of procedure uh, that, mm. was, uh, that is, the legal system used to follow. This actually sort of uh, ab- um, abandons any pretext of uh, uh, having any judicial element or uh, uh, kind of having anything to do with justice, unfortunately, and therefore makes it all, all
0: yeah. the most, most scary. Yeah, when I read this, I could not help but remember, think of the the famous Soviet era propaganda poster of the woman with the the red kerchief on, with her, you know, making the shush signal with her with her finger over her lips, and it says Naple tie, you know, don't, you know, don't, yeah. don't, 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 don't gossip, um, and and that, that that's positively chilling, and I think from a perspective of my own work. I rely so much on the expertise of Russians in Russia that basically explain to me what's going on. And if that is going to put them in criminal jeopardy, that that's going to that's going to have a chilling, chilling effect. Um, this is a this is a good way to, to to shift gears to get into the second half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion on the ongoing crackdown on media and civil society. Six months after Alexei Navalny was in prison. is he still a factor, or are we moving into a post-Navalny? Environment. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to Power the Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, a place I've never been but someday hope to visit, is my old friend and colleague Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, and a visitor. Visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review, as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Это
1: Навальный. работу. Half a new new
0: year ago, Alexei Navalny returned to Russia after being treated in Germany following an attempt by Putin's agents to poison him. He was promptly arrested, tried and imprisoned and the crackdown that intensified at the beginning of the year appears to be only expanding ahead of parliamentary elections. Now, it's not just Navalny, not just the political opposition, but all of civil society that is in the crosshairs. Maria, are we moving into this post-Navalny reality now? And what does that mean?
1: Um, that's an excellent, very interesting question. Uh, it's a little bit hard, of course, to talk about the future.
0: Yeah, no. Uh, but
1: but what, what's but yeah, certainly we, we do see that Navalny's team is prosecuted harsher Is um, one of the key targets of the current repression waves. Uh, he really, I mean, I think is correctly viewed by the system as a threat in the sense that he's one of the um, one and only, I would say, political leaders in Russia, independent political leaders who's been able to build his own system in the region party system his uh, chain of his um offices and as well as uh, had an unprecedented following on the um, uh social media uh and unfortunately uh, this currently increasing propaganda on social uh, on tv uh as well as this crackdown does seem to bring some results Specifically, according to the polls, uh, we see uh, that the popularity and approval of Alexei Navalny's activity has decreased. In September 2020, uh, the, the approval was about among 20 percent of Russians, so one fifth, as opposed to only 14 percent in June, uh, last June, uh, 2021. So it's a six percent decrease. Uh, that is directly, I think, a result of the state-TV propaganda. You can see that this uh, um de facto, a ban on mentioning his name has been lifted. Uh, So now all the TV channels go about how horrible Navalny is. And as I mentioned before, from personal conversations with people, it also feels uh, that uh, while there is general dissatisfaction with the political regime in the country and the, the way things are. There is no universal sort of uh, alliance around one uh, political figure, and many people uh, still uh, dislike Lexi. Uh, that, however, still makes it very hard to predict what's going to happen to him in the future. Many of his uh, allies have, have have been forced to flee the country, but many uh, stay in the country, like Rybov Sobol, Ilya Yashin. I think it's important to mention that not mm-hmm. everyone has fled the country, and they're very bravely courageously remain in the country and trying to uh, do things. At the same time, uh, there is also a growing number of other uh, young and active uh, people who uh, actually emerge, and I spoke to a bunch of them. Uh, It was actually very impressive since pretty much at some point uh, in June, anyone who announced their... uh, Willingness to run in the upcoming election, be it Duma level or maybe Moscow, Moscow state um, uh, Duma level or even municip- municipal level, immediate, almost immediately, got some charges, uh, criminal mm-hmm. or some other charges on them, imposed on them uh, by uh, FSB. And yet there are still people who, despite that, are still willing to run. Kind of strategize mm-hmm. try to sort of hide behind this repressive wave, maybe try delay announcing of the candidacy. Until late, so that the authorities can no longer down, uh, take them away, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That is extremely impressive. That there's still these people who mm-hmm. these new waves are coming, maybe smaller waves, but still there are people who want to ch- uh, the change. And I think it's res- in some ways it's re- it responds to some deeper desire for change that is increasingly exists in the society. Therefore, it generates these new waves of these people. So to go back on the topic about Navalny, I think it's hard to say. Because first of all, we don't know how long this wave is going to last. I, as many other observers, am, do not think this is going to end with the elections because I do not think the elections were the key reasons why uh, this wave of repression has emerged. But I do believe there will there will be small small uh, kind of decrease in this uh, amount of repressions after the elections, just because there will be other uh, things on on the Kremlin's mind. At the time, maybe some of the members of Navalny team will uh, will have the possibility to go back to the country. We don't know that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, And of course, Navalny, because of everything that happened to him and um, the fact that he really suffered and sacrificed his life, I think we can say, to uh, Russia after he came back to the country, has received this also uh, kind of Unique status in among the Russian opposition. That status will be there, and if in the future there will there is a political opening uh, that emerges, I mean, as I said before, chances are we are facing a regime that that will last as long as uh, Vladimir Putin's health. How about that? If there is an opening, since we know black swans always happen when you least expect them in that specific, that will create an opportunity for navalny because of the unique status i think he has received because of the sacrifice that he underwent uh, last year for russia
0: yeah and, and and there's nothing like a martyr to to to, to, to spark sympathy among the among the and Russians.
1: russia likes I, martyrs yeah
0: russia <laughs> loves martyrs now the thing about the another thing about navalny that that i'm noticing is i mean i miss his voice i mean is very correct char- charismatic he's very funny Um, And he's he's a very effective communicator. And what the Russian authorities have basically done is shut down his ability to communicate, which is really Navalny's greatest weapon, in my opinion. He's still getting statements out through yeah. his wife, Yulia, through his lawyers, but it's not the same as, as as turning on that YouTube and watching a just slickly produced, you know, eloquent uh monologue from 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 Navalny. And so that's 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 and it's almost this race against time in a lot of ways, how long before his mystique disappears. It seems to me what the regime wants to do is Hutterkovsky eyes him basically they put hodorkovsky in prison for you know was it 10 years he was, he was he was he was in prison and then he basically was you know forced to emigrate and then the, from as far as their concerns problem solved
1: uh, i think that's if anything sorry to drop That's a positive scenario yeah i think uh, i mean they still can easily murder a uh, human. yeah no and interested.
0: that's that's the negative thing i'm worried about so this is this i'm looking at this is a race against time we don't know where it's going to go to to as we Move up towards the end, I do want to read a quote from a recent article from the journalist Andrei Kolesnikov that I read that really caught my attention this week. He said, and I quote, the protest movement will never disappear. It'll go underground like a subterranean fire. Nobody can predict where and when it will burst through the surface. Um, so we are we looking at this protracted period where the opposition and the civil society has to go entirely underground or operate from abroad? What might that look like, and what are the prospects for that?
1: So history uh, shows that, uh, first of all, looking at Russia's uh, 20-year uh, regime – history of Russia's regime for 20 years, we see that, first of all, every time they erase uh, something like, for example, the crackdown on independent TV channels in the early 2000s uh, when Putin just to power, there will be something to replace uh, them. Uh, for Who knew about it? Internet was nothing at the time. Eventually, it produced one of the uh, best... Pieces of journalism, of investigative journalism in the world, specifically through, mm-hmm. say, the Insider slash cat team and mm-hmm. uh, the project uh, team, for example. So there's always uh, something new coming to replace, usually though in smaller shapes. So the authorities succeed in decreasing the audiences. When Madam got decreased, the, pro- oh, sorry, the Madam Mr. got uh, essentially. Uh,
0: taken over by the state effectively taken over
1: by the state exactly thank you uh the, the the new project they created the new media they created wasn't unable to match the the similar audience levels unfortunately so there's this limitation however it's still there the second example i think is served by other countries like belarus or venezuela and we see that increasingly the opposition movement is sort of forced Outside of the of these uh, countries, uh, so the role of Russian diaspora, I think, will uh, play a tremendous role in the new future. And Russian diaspora, by uh, I will remind you, as Andrey Soldatov points out, is the third largest in the world at this point, mm-hmm. after the Indian and Mexican uh, uh, diaspora. And it's a, it's a significant channel, which I think uh, will have to do more, we'll have to organize. significant number of those people are now concentrating you know, in Lithuania, in the Czech Republic. And mm-hmm. one of the key, I think the two main directions in which the activity should go, first of all, a creation of network, organization that would help and back up grassroots movements uh, within, the Russia, uh, within Russia and outside Russia. So rather than creating new projects, trying to find ways and channels to assist uh, those groups that still mm-hmm. are in Russia um uh, second of all yeah one of the key projects that's being discussed right now is creating a university university maybe somewhere in europe which would serve like a step Uh, would educate uh, Russians uh, live in the country and help them integrate in the West or go back to Russia with some uh, necessary skills. And third activity that's very useful, of course, is lobbying for sanctions, lobbying for policies uh, against uh, the Putin regime, and of course, raising awareness in the West about the threats that the Putin regime represents. Unfortunately, until now, I'd say we have not fully succeeded in convincing EU and the US policymakers in uh, the the degree of threats uh, that is coming from a Putin regime. Uh, Therefore, the the US policymakers still want to talk to Putin, still want to uh, create alliances and agreements uh, with Putin. And I think it's our work as the Russian diaspora to uh, continue persuading them that the the regime is is really a threat. Mm -hmm. And you cannot agree uh,
0: with someone uh, like Putin on anything. (laughs) Yeah, no, you. May, I mean, I do want to to wrap up, pick up on this issue of the diaspora, Maria, since you are a, a prominent member of the Russian diaspora here in, in in Washington, and you mentioned our mutual friend Andrei Soldatov, and in his in his last book, he and his co-author Irina Borogan wrote about the diaspora and wrote about its role in in Russian history. A fantastic book that I think everybody should read. Um, but one of the other things about that came out of that book was that the the Russian authorities and before them the Soviet authorities have always seen the diaspora as something they need to get their fingers into, um, whether by threats or, co- or co-optation or, or, or otherwise. As a prominent and increasingly high-profile member of the Russian diaspora, how worried are you going forward?
1: Oh, I Actually, at this point, I think uh, uh, we should be really worried about people in Russia who are really experiencing the crackdown, who are being uh, poisoned, you know, prosecuted, jailed, uh, those are the people who really experience serious uh, serious challenges and threats. Uh, on our side, you know, while being fairly uh, s- secure in the West, I think that, is, that should be the, our priority. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's what we sh- should be focusing on. And ultimately, you know, as Russian, I will be, use, you know, in, involve Russian uh, big classics here, literature that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you can never avoid uh, death. So from that perspective, I think it should be the issue that should, one should be particularly concerned. What you can do, though, is to make the best of your life. And one of the ways to do that is to assist uh, the people who currently aren't fairly prosecuted uh, by horrible dictatorial regimes. I think it's, at this point it's fairly um, a fairly true statement in both uh, Belarus and
0: Russia. Well, that is a very Russian way to look at that, and I mean that in only in the most positive way. And on that note, we shall wrap it up. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to The Power Article Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, has been my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegavaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and economics at Virginia Tech and a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University. Maria, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for an enlightening and fascinating discussion. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my messes and making us all sound a whole hell of a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. and Until then, as always, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.